welcome to a vegan curious special um occasionally as time goes by we can do interviews with people we think are really interesting and we've got someone who's really really interesting for our first one um the guy's name is josiah meldrum and he is from norfolk suffolk border and he is best known um for a company called hodmadod so he will explain exactly what Hobman Dodd does in much more detail, actually, in the interview. But um, Hobman Dodd uh, came to my attention for selling British baked beans, basically. And what they do is they are selling a kind of range, or they're pioneering a range of great British beans and peas um, and selling them uh, across the UK. Um, and going back and finding food that we used to grow in large quantities uh, in the UK, but kind of stopped doing once we've kind of got more rich as time's gone by. Um, one of the reasons I want to talk to him is that he's in the past had some really interesting, um, really interesting views on Brexit. So he's talked about how he thinks Brexit might be an opportunity for us to reconsider the way that, you know, the type of food that we eat um, and where it comes from. Um, but anyway, I'm going to let you go on with the interview now. Now, the only issue was recorded over the phone, so the sound quality is not that great. Um, but bear with it, because he's got lots of really interesting things to say. You've got on record as saying you think from a food perspective that the massive uncertainty of Brexit could be kind of positive. Um, why, why do you say that? Why, why do you think that? Um... I think, I think I said it largely because there's so much negativity um, and it's, it's, it's always nice to feel that there is some uh, cause for hope and we, we have, what we've noticed really in the last, um, really in the six months is, is an increased awareness and interest in UK uh, grown produce, uh, UK farming and UK food and I think, I think a part of that is certainly because uh, people are thinking much more about uh, provenance, and they're thinking about that. I think because of because of Brexit, whether they are, you know, whether they're interested in remaining or whether they're interested in leaving. I think that's that's the case. Mm-hmm. And you know, if we, I guess, if we, uh, um, in the event of a kind of no deal Brexit or a, a very hard Brexit, um, where there are question marks about imported food, you know, what what kind of things would be left for um, people to eat if they only eat British source products? And I'm thinking, obviously, specifically of vegans. I suppose there are, there, are, there are sort of two sort of classifications, really, of veganism, aren't there? There are people that are vegan, um, this is very generic, general, mm-hmm. vegan for um, ethical reasons and uh, because of their interest in animals and animal welfare. And, and then there's, a, there's, there's an increasing number of people who, and this is overlapping, obviously, it's not exclusive, uh, who are interested in it from uh, an environmental point of view and, and are thinking about climate change and um, you know, reducing our, our impact on the, on the earth. And th- those two things are obviously quite closely connected. But I think if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're at one end of the spectrum, there's a, there's a risk that you may well be eating a lot of imported and quite, quite highly processed foods, perhaps, uh, and that those will become harder for us to get hold of. What sort of thing, you know, what sort of foods are you talking about? I mean, are well, we talking avocados? The, I mean, that's the classic, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing that people always think of. And, and of course, a lot of them come from Mexico. So that's, that's, that's what possibly falls outside of Brexit, although we would still probably be um, at, the, at the mercy of WTO uh, tariffs. And things. But a lot are grown in Europe. And I think people are unaware of that and will come through Europe. They're coming from, from Israel. So, so there are products like that. There are a wide range of protein crops that are used and are eaten. Um, beans in particular, um, 
and peas, which are used not only in their whole form in a lot of vegan foods, but are, but are processed in various ways to extract protein, mm-hmm. uh, to extract starches, to, to manufacture other uh, products, particularly meat analogues. Uh, and, and what impact Brexit will have on them, I think, is, is unclear. A lot of them are coming from China and from the US and from Canada. Um, uh, and there will be uncertainty. The other area where there's uncertainty, and it's an area that obviously vegans are uh, particularly interested in or have a, a special interest in very often, is, is organic product. And that immediately we leave the EU, if we leave under a hard Brexit, uh, we, have to, we have to go through a process of uh, having our organic standards aligned with the EU again. That's a paper process. Obviously, nothing will change in terms of what's happening on farm. And, and in terms of legislation, it, it, it will be harmonised. But it is a six-month process. Um, and that could be extraordinarily difficult for UK companies exporting into Europe, which will, which will hit them quite hard, but will potentially have um, uh, import implications as well. Yes. Um, and then, so what? What British food? What you know? What, what exactly is British food? You know, what is the stuff that, if as a person, as a vegan, or even as a flexitarian, or, or you know, or, or just someone who cares about the environment, and they want to cut down on the kind of um, the you know the, the the distance their food has travelled, what sort of things should they be looking for? Yeah, I mean, uh, they should be looking at what's what's going in their locality and 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 who's who's producing it and, and how they can access it. And I think. From our, our perspective, obviously, we are interested in uh, arable crops, crops that are harvested uh, once a year in the autumn, mm. dry in the field, much like wheat, but also crops like our peas and beans and quinoa. And these are all excellent um, foods for, for anyone who's reducing their meat consumption or is cutting out meat mm-hmm. altogether. Um, those sorts of things were, you know, five, six years ago when we started, extraordinarily difficult to find, but are increasingly readily available, not not just through us, but through other uh, farm businesses and, and businesses who are um, increasingly realising that these, what are normally globally traded, quite anonymous crops mm-hmm. uh, can actually have, you know, full provenance and traceability, can return better value to the farmer, which incentivizes more sustainable rotations, uh, and are, you know, better for us, both from a health perspective, because, you um, they're, you know, they're healthy foods, but also um, because they're doing all those fantastic things, reinvesting in the local economy, helping us defend the landscape that we that we like and appreciate, mm-hmm. and so on. I think there's increasing interest in all of that. So, um, what, what's the story behind behind Hodma Dodd? Um, now, how did you end up championing all these kind of interesting British pulses? Nick Saltmarsh, William Hudson, and myself were all working for and directors of a small regional non-governmental aid organisation called um, East Anglia Food Link. And we've been working with East Anglia Food Link on and off between us for, well, almost since the millennium. Um, And we've done various projects. We've done work with public procurement officers from local councils, looking at how we could get more local food into schools and hospitals and onto the menus of, of sort of local authority provision. We had been working with DEFRA, doing some sort of advocacy work. We'd been, um, we'd been setting up farmers markets. We'd been working with farmers to set up organic farmers cooperatives. And we were increasingly interested in engaging directly with communities who wanted 
to understand a bit more about where the food had come from, mm -hmm. but also to get much more involved in the production, co-production, as you might call it. And we worked with a group called Transition City Norwich, who'd asked us a seemingly innocuous question. You know, could a city the size of Norwich, about 160,000 people, could a city that size feed itself? Um, what would the implications be for farming and diet? And would that diet be more, more resilient, better able to, to weather well, the quite literal changes in the weather that are likely to come through climate change, and also better prepare for, you know, um, potential uh, diminishing or, or, or increasing costs of, of the kind of resources that are used as inputs in agriculture. So that might be fossil fuels, but also some of the key minerals that are applied to the land. So we did a paper-based exercise, really, a spreadsheet-based exercise, looking at land use currently, looking at dietary requirements, and coming up with a couple of, well, three real scenarios, a sort of business-as-usual scenario, which is obviously almost impossible and, and really quite unsustainable. We looked at a, uh, what, what would now be called a flexitarian diet, but at the time we didn't, we, we'd never come across that word. So less meat, and the meat that was being consumed was extensive and high welfare. And then we looked at a, a, a vegan model as well, so completely cutting animals out of the rotation. Um, and uh, what was surprising was that both those latter two models uh, would allow Norwich to feed itself from a relatively reasonable area, not, not too huge, but also allow East Anglia to meet its wider commitment to other population centres in the UK. It's obviously East Anglia in isolation. Um, what was really uh, sort of striking um, to us was that there was this big missing element, both in diets and in the rotation the admirable crop rotation, which is beans. You know, we need beans um, for, the, for the protein that we might be missing if we're not eating so much uh, animal products. But also we need those amazing crops uh, in, in the fields because mm. they're helping build soil organic matter and they're fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere, so they're effectively creating their own food. Um, and uh, we would just astonished at how these crops, which are really relatively able to be grown in the UK, just were not being eaten. And um, we, we began speaking to farmers, um, and we knew they were growing peas and beans, and these are peas and beans for drying rather than for eating green. And it soon became clear that, that other than a, a market, a UK market for, for mushed peas and processed peas, uh, most of the peas that were being grown were being grown for animal feed. And that a large proportion of all the beans that were being grown were also being grown for animal feed. And the beans are a, uh, a small variety of a bean called Vitia faba, which is also uh, what we would know as a broad bean mm -hmm. when it's grown and eaten green and is a large bean. But these are small, they're thumbnail-sized beans. We, we began speaking to farmers, we began speaking to bean traders, and we realised that uh, although these things were considered animal feed, there was a huge human consumption market overseas, and that UK farmers were sending you know, 125,000, 150,000 tons into North Africa and the Middle East. They're a staple part of the diet. Love them. They, in, the Egyptians get through somewhere in the region of 600,000 tons of these beans every year, uh, and they are using them to make a dish called fulmadames, uh, or ful, which is eaten all across the Middle East and North Africa. And it's, it's, a, it's a kind of staple. Uh, it's eaten at breakfast, uh, often with an egg and with a green salad. Um, but it's also eaten during Ramadan to break fast. And every 
a bit like with hummus. Every every region, every country has its own recipe, and they can't grow enough of them. So they're buying from Australia, Canada, and, and Northern Europe, particularly UK, because we produce excellent beans. Is there an element of compromise in what you're doing, though, in terms of the fact that we've you've taken them? Well, I guess not compromise is the wrong word, but you know, you, you know, you you have to put them into a format that people understand. So, for example, I think your father beans are in baked beans, aren't they? Which are, you know, I, I've eaten them loads. I mean, they're they're they're, they're big, much bigger than the beans you traditionally get in in, yeah, in yeah. baked beans. And then you have a dal, which I just have for my lunch, and I have frequently, um, which again is a really interesting kind of. British take on a food that's associated, I, you know, I guess originally with with, with Pakistan yeah, and Bangladesh. That's right. Um, the, the majority of the beans we sell, we actually sell dry. We 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 sell the cans and we offer the cans and we've we've offered them for a long time actually, because we know that for a lot of people there's a big barrier around, particularly the whole beans, which take a long time to cook. Um, and that if we can at least get people to try them, then that's a start. Our recommendation, because makes for better eating is 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 that you should soak and cook beans and pulses yourself and we've added we've added other other products as well so i'll mill the beans into a gluten-free flour we do the same with peas and quinoa and, uh, and we've also well very early on actually we we've made roasted snacks a bit like habas fritas with the beans which again is a it's a really good way to to encourage people who, who think they don't like beans and peas, and there are a lot of those people, to, to try something that's very familiar in a way. It's a, it's a salty or a salt and vinegar bean snack or horseradish pea, um, and that, that often is, is the first step in, in getting people to, to think about getting these well, fantastically nutritious uh, foodstuffs into, back into their diets. And, uh, you know, are you mainly focusing on the UK market with these products, or, or are you looking to export? We've, we've had some interest from export, but we think there's a big opportunity in the UK coming back to Brexit again uh, the, the idea of developing export markets at this time feels risky particularly to Europe sure. okay one last question because I really appreciate your time um, you know if you're uh, you know most people listening to this are, are going to be vegan or at least vegetarian um, you know if they want to be doing they want to be encouraging um, society to become more sustainable about food creation you know, what should they be doing? Should they be giving up certain foods? Should they be eating only British food? What kind of organisations should they be joining? What 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 can the you know your average British person do? I think the first thing to do is just look at the origin on the packet and think about it. I mean, it, it, uh, and then you can you can easily make choices and substitutions. Um, some of the things that we've been quite surprised at is. Some of these supply chains are very complex, whether it's from North America or from or from China and and, the, and, and, and countries in Asia. And there are a whole host of issues there around treatment of people that are working on those farms and processing sites, um, all the way through to the production methods that are being used. And um, yeah, so I think it's a you know choosing choosing British is a really positive first choice. Finding um, local smaller food producers to work with that are working outside of the kind of mainstream commodity markets is 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 a very positive thing to do. Um, engaging with 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 some of the organisations that are producing. I mean, this year alone, there's been a, a slew of fantastic and fascinating reports uh, about uh, the impact of our diets on on the planet. Frankly. Um, from people like um, WWF, um, from from Sustain, the the Alliance for 
better food and farming down in London. Um, also things uh, more controversially, perhaps, like the Eat Forum's um, global diet that, that was presented and proposed uh, back in January. So I think, you know, just keeping an eye on these things. The, the problem or the challenge with food is that farming is, I think, you know, an inherently unsustainable practice because of the land use change involved. Uh, so there is no magic bullet or special answer. <laughs> One just has to look at what's sort of locally appropriate and and, and make choices on that basis, I think. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a minefield. Reducing meat consumption has got to be the first thing and prioritising. For people that are still eating meat, and, and as you said, many of your listeners will have already made that choice, Making making the first choice to, to cut back on factory farmed meat, I mean that that should be the, the obvious first step. Um, and and um, and looking to find looking to find a diet that, that works for you because I think I think sometimes people set themselves very high targets and that can be quite demoralising. It, it should be a pleasure eating, not a not a burden. And you know, there are a wealth of recipes out there um, for for dishes that, that, that aren't overtly vegetarian or vegan. They just happen to be because they are from, um, you know, sort of peasant cultures all over the world where mm. historically meat was not a widely eaten, it was a very high, highly prized and, and valued uh, ingredient, but it wouldn't have been for every day. But there's some fantastic and very simple recipes um, for for whole grains and for whole pulses that, that require very little processing, and, and where largely you can um, you can mix everything together, put it on the hob or put it in the oven and leave it to it. And um, you know, rediscovering the joy in, in cooking is, is something that that certainly Nick William and I have done over the last five years. Every time we, we find a new ingredient or a new crop that we might be able to grow in the UK, there's this exciting journey of discovery. Camelina, what a fantastic, nutritious seed, rich in omega oils, um, delicious flavour. Have you seen it before? We, we started thinking about growing it. And, and, you know, so there's this whole journey of, of, of cooking with it and experimenting with eating it. Wow. So just to say, if people want to try your products, um, I guess mainly they're in kind of organic-y shops or, or are you in any yeah, of the big so chains? We're in, we're in a lot of independent stores. We have our own online shop, which is, which is brilliant. And that obviously has a full range. But we, we, yeah, we're independent delis, farm shops, whole food shops. Um, I think our cans are available in, in, in Morrison's through one of the wholesalers we work with. Um, but uh, but I'm, I'm never sure where or, or how wide. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, uh, Josiah. That was fantastic. Save the planet and make it heal. You can help by eating a vegan meal. Come join us if you're vegan curious. Tastes as good as being vegan feels. Come join us if you're vegan curious. And don't feel sad, don't feel blue. So it ain't so bad, I swear it's true. Just use the right condiments and you'll even like tofu. Just be vegan curious Life is good, life is sweet 
When on your plate there is no meat Come join us if you're vegan curious Come join us if you're vegan curious